Welcome. Welcome back, everybody, to a uh, another episode of, of Energy Bites. Rad Dad John Calfan here with my wonderful co-host Bobby Neal. How you what's doing? up? Today, uh, I'm I'm having a great week. We got the the SSO push out That's to right. uh, collide this week, and uh, finally, it's taken two months to do. That. It's been but, a process. Yep. Um, and then Arkansas beat Duke. So I had a huge win for the Arkansas fan base after we'll a, so a terrible uh, football, football season. season. <laughs> but today we've got uh, we've got Sawyer Nyquist uh, joining us as the the uh, founder of the Data Shop. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, how's it going, Sawyer? <laughs> I'm doing well. Uh, I, I know you guys are in the South, but I'm I'm in Michigan, and it is snowing right now. Oh man, it's I mean. December first, snow is beautiful. Um, so I'm I'm enjoying it right now. Warm coffee. That's yeah, awesome. Headed, December first here, and it's a balmy it's, seventy degrees. That's <laughs> like, yeah, it is <laughs> here in the last two days. Uh, but that's that's Houston. If you don't like the weather, just wait another day. Yep. <laughs> well, we have snow on December first and like April first sometimes. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very different. Goes, goes all over the place. Yeah, yeah, I'll be I'll probably be with the kids in the pool in April. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but. Cool, man. Well, I appreciate you uh, jumping on and joining us. Um, we ended up getting connected through, you know, LinkedIn and stuff because you mm-hmm. were at the time you were working on uh, some of the Microsoft Fabric stuff and and some of that. So we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. But um, you know, the the main thing we typically talk about out of the gate is kind of how did you, uh, you know, your journey kind of to this point to uh, to be in the the owner of your own shop. Um, but how did you kind of get into tech? Um, you know, early on growing up, you know, were you taking apart computers? Were you into tech at all? Or did that kind of just happen and evolve over, over time and stuff? Kind of walk us through kind of where you, uh, how you got here a little bit. Yeah. I do not have much of a tech background at all for many years. My education was in, um, religion and theology. Like I had a liberal arts degrees, um, from at a bachelor's and then I had a master's degree from seminary. And so like I used computers, I did had zero technical understanding of, of the, the guts of them or any technical infrastructure, really a desire for that at all. Wasn't, wasn't, uh, something that showed up at all in my, in my life after finished school, uh, landed in like a business operations job, um, doing logistics for a travel company, figured out, I kind of liked business stuff, um, like business strategy, liked operations, like thinking about products and pricing and marketing. Uh, and all those different things that showed up in a small business I was a part of. Spent about five years in that space and then got a chance to do like a technical support role. So I was like, still business side, working with business users, but for a software company. And all of a sudden my manager said, hey, you would be better at your job if you knew SQL. Uh, you can do troubleshooting. Nice. You can do like uh, deep dives and kind of like exploratory about what's happening with these issues the customers are running into. Uh, and so he... He taught me select star from and uh, very indebted to to him for that. And it, that that turned on a, a, tr- a switch in my mind. Um, yeah. All of a sudden it, it clicked. Things made sense. I, I could think in data. I could think in terms of like structures of how um, code would work from at least like a SQL standpoint initially. Uh, and once I figured out that I had a knack for that space, kept diving deeper. And then I realized that there is a a beautiful little niche in the middle between data and the business world. And I figured out I could start to speak both languages and that oftentimes the technical side of the house and the business side of the house don't talk well to each other. Uh, no, not at all. 
Yeah. And so kind of like my liberal arts background, um, my soft skills um, allowed me to play that role really well. And that, that kind of, you know, ended up as like business intelligence and data analytics generally that, that the type of role that sits between business and data and business and technology. And then had a ton of fun once I discovered that that was a domain, that was an industry that was seven or eight years ago and got into technical consulting. My first, my first real like tech heavy job um was as kind of a data consultant working with much more senior people than me like beautiful mentors kind people who put up with stupid questions and helped me really figure out uh how to uh how to do data warehousing how to think about data engineering how to think about data analytics uh and really like accelerated a learning curve and a growth curve um for me that um that hasn't stopped <laughs> it's been yeah. it's been a really fun journey and i i figured out quickly uh as I got into that, that, oh, this is, this isn't just a job. Like I'm buying books on Amazon about it. I am yeah. Yeah. watching <laughs> YouTube videos kinda. in the evenings. And, uh, that, all of a sudden I was like, oh, this is something different. Um, and this might be a career path, actually something I'll stick with for a while. And it, it has. Now that's, uh, it's funny how many people's, uh, gateway drug into tech is this sequel or mm-hmm. <laughs> take pieces out of the gate. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in kind of a similar, uh, oh. Um, my background is a little bit similar in the, the sense that I'm a, I'm a mechanical engineer that ended up getting my, my MBA and, uh, but I, I as well felt that I understood and com- could communicate both the business mm-hmm. side of things and then the technology side of things. And you are absolutely a hundred percent spot on, regardless of what industry you focus on. If you're in tech, there is always a pretty decent disconnect between the developer technical data side of the house yeah. and the business users and things like that. And so, you know, like uh, that's one of the, the pitches for a lot of the low code, no code stuff that's out there yeah. right? is yeah. give the, give the, the, the business user the power to, to rapidly prototype develop and, and push while not having to <laughs> deal with as much of the, uh, the technical side as, of things, but it's, uh, no, I, there's, that's, I mean, that's probably one of the, most common themes across all of our guests so far is there is not a traditional path to <laughs> to most yeah. people's uh yeah. tech tech journeys and stuff so that's that's really cool uh, and, and honestly it's probably industry. probably easier to be a high performer when you come with a different background yeah. uh, and like you're talking about those, some of those soft skills again I, I think you and i honestly have a pretty similar background in the sense of you know, really no technical training and then really similar timeline too i got into the oil and gas industry but that was also my foray into mm-hmm. data Mm-hmm. uh back in 2014 and i, I came out of te- i was a teacher and a coach i mean and mm-hmm. i had a math degree but i you know my whole thing is like i didn't even know what a vlookup was in excel when i yeah. when i started um but i think being able to bring some of those communication skills and learning how to communicate with different people different types of people and you know kind of even the teaching knowing that people learn differently or see things yeah. you know different some are visual some are auditory you know and everything and being able to kind of tie those themes together and and like you're saying be that glue or be that bridge between the technical side and the uh yeah and the business side is super important well yeah it can't be understated yeah and that's the thing is it's like the you know a lot of the times the developers you know they're doing their sprints they're up against deadlines and timelines and all of that stuff and so a lot of the times if they're not tied into the business unit as well Mm -hmm. or understand the business or the business problem 
they're just you know going through and checking the boxes right like okay it needs to do this okay so i'm gonna go ahead and check that box but that doesn't mean that it's going to be useful or valuable to the end user because if you don't understand how they what their workflows are how they use the tools that they're using and all those things then it yeah yes you check the box but is that feature actually how the end user wants it or whoever <laughs> put you know put the ticket in for it yeah or even just giving that little bit extra i mean like oftentimes yeah. i'm able to like all right you want this but i know eventually you're going to want mm-hmm. this or want this detail associated with it so being able to yeah kind of know what they want and giving them even a little bit extra and like oh i didn't know i could do that but that's even even better um but you have to understand the domain to be able to do that yeah. for them as well but let's kind of dive in on some of that though because that's been a lot of some your post recently uh sawyer has it been kind of on like if you want to know what the business wants, ask them and listen, <laughs> you listen to them. So, I mean, can you kind of dive in on some of that or even some examples like that have kind of spurred that on? Um, cause I think it is important and I think you've gotten some pushback so we can kind of talk about some of that where it's like, well, what if they ask you for something absolutely ridiculous and like, you know, the kind of difference between like the tech, the technical solution, but then actually listening to what they really need or want. Right. Well, yeah. And what they say they want typically isn't exactly like how you would do it on the back end too. Right. Yeah. Like it's, sure. Or, you know, they think they want something, but in reality, the you have to really pry it out of them and yeah. dig in to, to figure out what the actual problem that you're trying to solve is. Yeah, I, I'm a proponent of, well, it, I mean, in the data space, specifically data professionals, we, we always harp on like data literacy. And I hear regular complaints about, hey, uh, all my business stakeholders don't understand data. They don't have any data literacy. Uh, and the complaint, the opposite direction is, yeah, most of the data people don't have any business literacy. Um, they can't think about solving business problems. Yep, and yep. it's it's often, I, I advocate, like it's more important for the data people to understand the business than for the business people to understand data. And when data, data professionals, data teams can't understand and actually want to know what the business outcomes are, then we can get some shared alignment. Um, what happens is like a, you know, business team is uh, trying to get their goal and then they turn to the data team and they start telling the data team what to do. And the data team starts trying to figure out like, how can we do this with data? And like, we were talking about like this middle point of like, what what data points do you want? Okay, I can get you these data points. I can get you at this um, at this level. And then we end up with all these uh, cross wires about um, which was the right ask and did they actually get what they wanted and they asked for the wrong thing. And it's like, what if we were focused on the business outcome? Right. What if we were focused on the end goal? And we had a clear articulation of what that was and a clear articulation of how we were getting there and our, our markers along the way. Um, if the data team knew what that was, uh, there's going to be much less of the data team or the business team doesn't know what they want or they ask for the wrong thing. We know what the shared goal is. Data gets to, data teams get to implement that in the way that they're the expert on the technology. The business is the expert on the business. Um, let's, let's try to keep that clear. <laughs> yeah. So as a little bit of of the stories I've heard is, uh, oh, the business asked for something and they didn't know what they wanted. It was the wrong thing. Well, it's because you ask them about their technical requirements and they're they're experts on the business. Ask them what their business goals are. You help (laughs) them get to their business goals. Um, They told me that they wanted a hundred, you know, spreadsheets that were syncing real time across it. Like, yeah, they were trying to describe technical requirements because that's what you ask them for. You're like, what do you need from spreadsheets? Um, Like ask them what their business goals are and then partner with them to achieve that goal. That, that's been kind of the work I've been hoping to do at the data shop where you know I'm helping teams define, identify, and deliver value. Like, hey, we're trying to find things that are valuable. And value means making the business work well. Um, is the business working better? And that looks like 
goals and strategy, as well as sometimes technical infrastructure and processes and, and delivery methods. Um, but it spans across lots of soft skills as well as like the hard skills. And uh, the, the mindset that I've struggled with a lot is when it becomes an us versus them with the data yeah. and the business. Yeah. Yeah. And the, when it's, uh, when the phrase is the business doesn't know what they want, um, it's kind of a, a patronizing or paternalistic view of the business <laughs> of like, they don't know what they want, um, or what's underneath the curtain of that is the business is stupid. Um, right. and they're not yeah. asking the right questions. It's like the business actually knows what they're doing a lot. Um, they're just not speaking your language or you don't interested in learning their language. And the yeah, and they're actually <laughs> generating the revenue that, you know, like is paying yourself, you know, like in some, in some things are going right. They just don't know how to ask you or you, you haven't, you know, created the right pipelines for them to engage mm -hmm. with you or, or to, you know, speak your language. So, yeah, yeah. No, and you bring up a good point that I know Bobby is like a pretty big proponent of And that is, you know, making sure that, uh, that these things are defined on both sides and mm -hmm. you know, the, the business users don't care how the sausage is made. They just want yep. the sausage. Right. And most of the time the tech guys don't care <laughs> what the sausage looks like in the end. They're hyper focused <laughs> on building, mm -hmm. you know, the thing. And yeah. I completely agree with you that, you know, the, the typical approach, because that's what devs are used to is, Hey, okay, we're going to go get all these technical requirements and blah, blah, blah. And then we're going to break those down into tasks yeah. and sprints yeah. and all of this stuff. And the business users have no idea what any of that mm -hmm. shit is. They have mm -hmm. no clue what a sprint is or what agile yeah. development is yeah. or any of that stuff. <laughs> and so it's, you know, it's a, I completely agree with you that a lot, and it's tricky because I, I kind of fall on the more on the business side because that's most of my background. But, <laughs> you know, the, the business users, I don't believe the business users should be responsible for defining the like objectives and stuff it should fall mm. on the project manager or the technical teams to unpack like understand look to your point what is the problem we're trying to solve here not how do you want to go about solving the problem and all yeah. of the steps in between that because that's what the technical folks are there for and mm. you don't want a business user saying yeah i think we should use you know sql for this unstructured mm. data set like, <laughs> no that's a dumb idea you know like and well and what uh, what partnership looks like between data teams and business teams is uh, we both win together or we both fail. Like right, there's, yeah. there shouldn't be a scenario where like the data team's like, well, we did everything right. We're good. And the business like, yeah, but we didn't hit our goals or we couldn't achieve what we wanted to. Like that's not partnership. Um, that's, that's everybody has different incentives, different goals and, and <laughs> yeah, different right. competing alignment. Partnership means I don't win if you don't win. And so I'm with you data team to the business. I'm with you until we hit those goals and I'll move with you if we got something wrong the first time that's all right like we're still moving along toward that objective and we win when we're or yeah we don't win until we both win yeah i mean like again let's say if you're trying to work on something that was going to reduce cost and then your profits weren't any better at the end of the year it's like well we built the tool that helped them you right. know identify where they could have saved but like to your point you didn't have the partnership with them where they had buy-in that they were actually using it potentially mm -hmm. or it didn't deliver what they wanted but then there weren't again i've seen things where there's just not the communication of Oh, I built this and you said it was good, but then two months later, you, there was no follow up. And it's like, oh, mm -hmm. we're not using that. And like, well, why not? Well, this, sure. I, I mean, honestly, like, you know, and it's been good. We, we started at the kind of at the idea of one of our previous guests. I started doing some uh, office hours, you know, mm -hmm. every couple of weeks where like people can just come in with different questions like, hey, how do I do this? Or, hey, this isn't working. Can you help me? And we had one yesterday where they were using a dashboard and they're like, well, this thing doesn't work for a while. And I went in and like, 
someone had saved it with a filter and it was the filter, <laughs> and it, but it wasn't obvious that the filter was on mm. and it was filtered to May. So it probably stopped working around May, which sounds about right. Cause about five, <laughs> six months ago. And I was like, if, if we open this filter out to today, yeah. it'll work. And sure enough, I'm like, Oh, this is great. Mm. You know, like, but even just a little thing like that, where it's like when there's silence on both sides and you don't have those mm. lines of communication, like, you know, mm you don't you lose that buy-in or yeah no i think uh, you're spot on right like because a lot of the times it's like okay you go you develop whatever you're trying to develop and then it's on to the next thing and then there isn't a lot of that follow-up like hey a month two months three months how's it six going months in right like mm-hmm. that just checkup because typically what happened i mean we see this all the time it, whether it's in the field or in the office right like if it isn't working in the way the end user wants it to work or expects it to work, they just quit using it. Yeah. And, or they're going to work around you. Right. Yeah. yeah. Or they'll work. (laughs) That's another very common problem in our industry is they just find ways to work around it. Shadow it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, again, like you, you work with enough, we work with a lot of engineers. John is an engineer, but like you work Mm -hmm. with enough, you know, like we're talking like petroleum engineers or whatever, but like, they're problem solvers. And if you don't get them, you know, give them a good way to get it, they're going to find a way and they're going to work around Mm -hmm. it. Yep. Um, and you also see it even, and maybe we can talk about this and how you've seen it work at bigger and smaller organizations. Sawyer is like, if, when it puts too many roadblocks or, I mean, sometimes they have necessary layers of, you know, security or protection, but like for each of those kind of roadblocks, people are going to have to find a way around it. Like, Mm. oh, well, I can't do this on the database. Now I got to learn power query or Mm. now like, and then that business logic gets pushed further kind of downstream and, you know. And you have monstrosities of Excel documents because that's the only <laughs> yeah. place that they can do anything, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, maybe if you want to talk about that, like if you've been at bigger or smaller shops and just what you've seen that works or um, or doesn't work. Or I'm yeah. also curious while you're talking about that because this is another theme we've seen all across pretty much every guest. But you know, from the dev side, the most successful implementations of pretty much anything I've ever seen in adoption is typically meeting the business user or the end user where they are most comfortable right and so mm-hmm. like i used to hate the fact that our industry does so you know billion dollar publicly traded companies and you still have shit running on spreadsheets right like mm-hmm. multi-million dollar decisions being run on spreadsheets and i was like oh great spreadsheets where you know data goes to die right but mm-hmm. the but i've kind of flipped on that and it's you know if you have data and the end user is an accountant who is used to using excel and knows all the shortcuts in excel you should meet the end user in excel because that's where they want to that's what they know and where they're most comfortable so find a way to make that work and you can do that now where it's you know a lockdown spreadsheet or power where you give them reproducible workflow still but right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah right they just need the the data to be updated and refreshed into the spreadsheet and then they can do whatever magic they want on the back end with it but it's, yeah, I think Excel's never going to die. So, no. like the, your your data architecture, your data strategy, like it needs to take into account Excel. And there's yep. all sorts of idealistic visions from data professionals around, like you know, having clean and pure like business intelligence reporting and analytics that's governed and managed, uh, and don't export my report to Excel. Um, but that's what people do, and that's right. what they need to be able to do, oftentimes. And so, how do we take into account meet the business user where they're at? There, there is always going to be a push and pull thinking about that larger organization question of of having lockdown controls on like centralized and like require like all sorts of approval levels um at fortune 50 companies all sorts of approval levels before you can get any data you wanted to or get any changes made or um, access to uh pieces and so you end up 
doing workarounds. Um, there's like the lockdown and centralized uh, ideal. And then the other side of like kind of like open chaos or open free flowing information where you can get what you want, but who knows the quality of it. And it's always a tug and pull between those two pieces, like the organizations that are super locked down and have all sorts of like uh, layers of approval to get access struggle a lot to move quickly and to make anything happen. And that's just bureaucracy at large companies. And that just exists when you've got 17 enterprise architects who have to approve a change. Um, (laughs) But at at small nimble organizations, like, yes, people can get access to what they want, like in the same day, but you have all sorts of other like quality and governance challenges that show up. And it's just a, it's a push and pull and it, and your, your company changes as it matures and it moves and as it grows, you, you end up with those different layers of structure. You move from being really innovative and nimble um, to being much more efficiency and uh, control driven. Yeah. Process driven. Yeah. You're either, you're either a preservationist or you're, um, you know, uh, progressive and it's always a push and pull between those and organization tends to move along that spectrum from one side to the other. Neither's, Neither's bad. You just you just got to realize where you're at and and work within those constraints. No, I think that's spot on, right? Like even you know, I've worked at a number of companies and stuff and like when I started here, you know, I, we migrated over to HubSpot, for example, and uh like I initially struggled quite a bit with like okay, well which who you know, we only have 10 people in the company in the office at least. And I was like, well, which of these users needs admin privileges, right? And like that terrifies me as the one who is, yeah. I've, I've done CRM, you know, administration basically for the last, well, almost a decade now. But it's one of those things is like you can't just leave it open because then your data mm-hmm. just becomes complete garbage. But you also want to give it, you know, you don't want to bog down your small organization by having too many limitations in place but you also don't want people going in there and just creating (laughs) wreaking havoc not realizing what they're doing it's also easier to loosen the reins than it is you know that's (laughs) same with parenting Uh you know with you know an organization like you can if you have it tightened it's a lot easier but once it's the cat's out of the bag it's really hard to pull pandora back into the box once they've been using that new data field that they created on their own six months ago and you didn't know about it. Yeah. And you're like, Oh, well that we already have a field that does that. And you've now <laughs> yeah. screwed up all the filters <laughs> and all the reports that are off of that. But I'm very curious to kind of jump into some of the stuff you were, you were working on, uh, previously at, uh, at Microsoft and, and what you guys have been doing. I mean, obviously I, I, I think people sleep quite a bit on what Microsoft has really done over the last decade plus right but like sure i mean growing up you know windows was always there microsoft was always there but you know apple was always like the progressive innovative Mm -hmm. reviewed that way right and i feel like at least the last decade now once they they started integrating all of the the team stuff and you know just all the cloud-based stuff Mm -hmm. um then the power apps and power bi and you know microsoft is just so good at spotting new trends technologies softwares going and buying them and integrating them into their stat you know very well, similar they've to become it. good at it well I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah but I'm, I'm curious just to to kind of hear a little bit about what you were working on over there and and some of the stuff that uh that, that you know you mm-hmm. were you were mm-hmm. playing with and, and seeing and stuff like that the yes yeah, so i spent about three years at microsoft and mostly in like professional services, like helping customers use Microsoft products, Mm -hmm. um, doing development and and builds out for them. And so got a chance to work closely with product teams and try to like 
to help figure out like what is the directions product what are we doing with this how are we because we're trying to implement this at a at an innovative customer who wants to be on the cutting edge of this you know microsoft has a a reputation for you know from naming conventions to changing their names like that kind of stuff like yeah. valid reputation they've had products that have flopped um we can talk about what that looks like at times too uh they've also as as you pointed out have been probably quietly remarkably successful in the data world um in certain types of organizations there's yeah, yeah. still certain types of organizations that you know if you work in the startup world or the saas world microsoft has not really like it's 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 aws stacks it's it's modern data yeah. stack tools um but if you go to enterprise or any sort of like legacy or established industries then you end up with like heavy microsoft stack mm-hmm. both legacy as well as um azure focused and and power bi has been a gateway drug for a yeah. lot of companies yeah. on microsoft tools and and that's something that Microsoft has specifically uh, capitalized on with with Fabric and how they moved that direction, um, because, well, so Synapse was the last yeah. big Microsoft data launch. Uh, you know that was four years ago, maybe. Sounds and right. I would yeah. say yeah. Because before that was <laughs> Azure Data Warehouse, technically right, and then they kind of sort yep. of rebranded a little bit, and then yep, rebranded, pulled some things under the same banner, and it was it was a lot of hype around and Synapse, and I think there's valid criticism that synapse probably didn't 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 achieve what everybody hoped it would um and so people were pretty skeptical about anything new and then what's next uh, and so when fabric was was hitting all the bells earlier this year it was hey this is just maybe valid skepticism coming out yeah um, yeah and so i i you know, Synapse did a good job of incorporating Data Factory, and Data Factory has been a successful product. And Synapse did a good job of introducing Spark and having Spark notebooks, and Synapse having its own Spark runtime, which is again a really powerful incorporation. Uh, the Synapse data warehousing piece did not live up to the what it, what it needed to be, and Snowflake and Databricks continued to gain steam and take over a huge market share in that world. Uh, so Fabric has kind of been like the answer to that in some ways, or their goal of like repositioning to hopefully catch up with like large, um, I, I'm speaking as an outsider. I'm not yeah. like <laughs> inside Microsoft. So this is like, I have, I see the pros and cons and the, and the, and the flaws, uh, as well as some of the, the diamonds that are in there. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's what we want on this podcast is the real story, not the, the <laughs> yeah. PR version, um, for people who <laughs> aren't as familiar with some of the Microsoft stacks products <laughs> and stuff like that. Can you kind of just briefly touch on what fabric is, <laughs> what they're, presenting it as the you know how that compares to certain you know what other things in the market kind of, that compares to or is an analog to that well i mean from an energy perspective like i'll just i'll back up a second just thinking about like industries and where they're at uh and do a history something like you've got your kind of get your is solutions or the infrastructure solutions that were um sql server on-prem yep. ssis ssrs um ssas those are like the legacy products that are still probably that are very prevalent in the market still. Um, a lot of people are still running SQL servers, boxes oh, installed yeah. in the server room. Yeah, I mean that's oil and gas number yeah. one. I mean one on one. Yeah, <laughs> they all so have SQL so like that's the foundation. Is like hey, like Microsoft started there um, in terms of like their data stack, and that's still a very rigorous data stack. Uh, th- there's the cloud versions of those. Then you've got like your PaaS solutions in in Azure, um, which is you know your Azure SQL DB. Data yep. Factory, um, and then Power BI became like the the main successor. SSAS, there. basically. Yep, 
Yep. Also, it's um, running under the hood. <laughs> like you yeah, can yeah, connect it to the SSAS engine. It's the same engine down there. Uh, and so the, you, you kind of move from like IaaS solutions of like, here, you get your own boxes and um, install these these servers on there or the software on there to pass solutions hosted in the cloud. Um, Fabric is the is the SaaS solution, the next progression. So from infrastructure to platform to like software as a service. And it takes away the goal of Fabric was to essentially like it's going to package up those those data tools um, and it's going to put them into a managed environment uh, where the where the all the configuration pieces, all of the um, a lot of like the governance and a lot of the knobs and switches that are under the covers that you used to configuring if you had a SQL server or even if you had an Azure DB, um, all that gets abstracted and is available in a managed offering within Fabric. So it's a SaaS, SaaS service and it's the first of its kind in terms of like um, a SaaS Spark runtime. Spark has never existed as a SaaS platform. Um, it's, you know, the it's, it's a SaaS data warehouse, which is the most similar to what a Snowflake would be like in terms right. of like ease of use. Like in, in 30 seconds, you've you've spun up right. the data Push warehouse. Deployment. Yeah. 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 Um, and so just like the the ease of use from moving from like legacy technology of SQL Server on-prem to right. um, what you have with Fabric is is worlds different. And even back to like early in our conversation, when you talk about the the the, the gap between business and IT, that gap existed for a long time just because there was heavy IT infrastructure that required specialized skills. And then business users, it was harder for those to merge together. They lived further away physically in the building. Um, but that's slowly been closing as technology right. has moved from IaaS to PaaS to even SaaS solutions where... I don't need IT infrastructure in order to deploy a service or in order to deploy a data yeah. warehouse or a, a report. That's a little bit of like Fabric is the is the SaaS solution um, to to package up all of Azure, all of Microsoft's data legacy data products and all of their PaaS and Azure data products um, into a single banner. Very cool. So with some of that, can you talk a little bit? Because I mean, I, I think say on that business user side, because I think one of the interesting things too is even like you can almost. <laughs> connect to or mount your fabric data like through windows explorer i think i've seen right you can actually see it there technically really um but then i think it it is because it's really similar in a way to databricks where it's a well a it's using what delta lake Mm -hmm. files right Mm -hmm. um and you can hit it with python or r engines duckdb and so on but say more on the business user side because people could and i guess they kind of sort of could before but now like they'll be able to use essentially kind of power query or data flows and stuff like that right on the mm-hmm. data like mm-hmm. kind of downstream so again they, they won't even need necessarily a data engineer to write some data aggregations for them if they know how to use some power query i mean can you dive in on some of that yeah so i mean if that's fabric, right or wrong too <laughs> it, it is it is directionally correct so like fabric they um the microsoft team like use power bi as as i said the gateway drug to all of a sudden they're like every we have I don't know the millions of users, I don't know the exact count. It is millions of users of Power BI, organizations that already have Power BI installed. What they did is that we've got all these people who already have this Power BI tenant, already have reports out here, already know how to use it. We're just gonna put, like open it up and we're gonna add all sorts of additional tools inside that same. If you've used Fabric at all, or if you've opened up Power BI in the last couple of months, it's now the Fabric emblem. All those tools landed inside of Power BI, as opposed to having to like, you gotta go buy something else or head somewhere else. So they basically took Power BI, a lot of significant updates to Power BI itself, um, but then they added in a bunch of other tools that 
integrate very tightly into that Power BI ecosystem um, that you're that's that SaaS platform that you're already familiar with. And, and so, yeah, like it, it, you know, one way to think about it is like they just added an abstraction layer on top of all that, so you don't spin up Azure storage accounts anymore. You have one link, and you don't spin up a data warehouse anymore. You or you don't have to, in Azure, um, you now click a button and create a warehouse. And so all of those abstractions are on top. It, they say it's it's fully re-architected from the bottom in terms of a technical standpoint, but from a user infra- perspective, instead of individual Azure resources that require an admin, um, you're creating all that within the Power BI portal, which is a very friendly place. And yeah. you can do your data engineering tasks and your data manipulation in very Power BI friendly tools. The Power BI winners, the Power BI users were the big winners with Fabric because the tools that they were familiar with, Power Query, they already know how to use, and the Power BI interface, all that just got a huge upgrade and all sorts of additional tools put at the fingertips of a Power BI user. So if I understand correctly, I so I love the the ETL backend Power Query side mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. of Power yeah. BI because I'm a very visual person and yeah. I'm also not detail oriented enough to be good at coding. Um and so like you know, I can understand how I need to transform the data, but having that GUI mm. on top of it, and then of yeah. course the ability to go in and actually do any kind of raw scripting is so nice from a user perspective. Mm. But if yeah. I understand correctly, I'm now able to do the exact same process, but I'm able to actually do that on my data lake from <laughs> Power BI, or is it just another, there's another tool within Power BI that allows me to do some of those ETLs. <laughs> Yeah, and this is so like we're we're in process here. But it used to be you you do Power BI desktop development. Everything right. was in desktop, and so like you did, you had Power Query and you did ETL kind of in the desktop. Yeah. Um, they started to introduce data flows, which would do some of that in the cloud. Um, m- for the most part, all of Power BI development is going to now be available in the cloud. So when you're developing Power BI reports and um, doing ETL and Power Query work, that's now natively developed inside Fabric, and it's 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 connected to like data fab or data factory, which is your integration tool. Mm, so like, there, right. yes, it is like you, your power BI sits directly on top of your data lake and you can transform data directly from the data lake with an ease and integration that just like didn't exist very well before all, all natively in the cloud. Like you're, you're working within the browser to do all this work mm-hmm. and yeah. connecting to data factory pipelines in terms of like creating overall orchestration flow of data transformations the transformation engine in data factory now looks like power query got it and yeah. scales like power like a enterprise data integration tool should uh and, and with the ease of use for someone like john who like wants to see guis like wants to see how it shapes and like in it visually and I, i'm that way too a lot of times it's easy to look that way yeah and let's talk also then because i mean i know fabric being released was also coincided really well for them with uh, GPT and Copilot. I mean, mm-hmm. it can use because, like, I mean, there's some of that promise with it too. Now is where you could actually define pipelines by prompting, correct? And then that it, you know they're working to where that can de- build your pipeline just from a prompt, um, mm-hmm. or even then. I mean, obviously they've kind of had it in a way, but probably it's even more amplified now is being able to visualize data in your Power BI reports and asking literally asking it questions. Yeah. Not, you know, not having to create charts or anything that, or even like it makes suggestions now too, yeah. which is really nice. Like, Hey, do you want to see it sliced this way? Or, Hey, this basic little regression shows that this yeah. is really important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which some of that stuff has like been in power BI for a little bit, like show yeah. me insights on my data. Uh, right. and it was like, 
hey, sales go up by month. Like, okay, yeah. not, not super helpful. Um, but I mean, we, we talk about people sleeping on Microsoft, uh, the the open AI integration and the pieces that are coming and the co-pilots that are showing up in Microsoft are really uh, showing up, moving very fast. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, Fabric is, th- there's not like one co-pilot. This is what I always, I'm trying to get my head around. There's like, there's a, a dozen mm-hmm. co-pilots. There's a co-pilot that lives here and co- they're all called co-pilots. They all operate a little bit differently. Um, so the, yeah, within Fabric, you now are having co-pilots that, uh, and this, this changes week by week. So, I mean, even as listeners yeah. are hearing this, like, goodness, I can barely keep up with when co-pilots are released in different pieces. But the Power BI co-pilots, like, design me a report around this data model. And it'll give you, and with with a few directions, like I'm looking for sales analysis or I'm looking for, um, you know, performance downtime or pieces like that. It'll It, it can build out visuals. There's the, you know, the GitHub copilot has been around for a while. Um, yeah. A while. Yeah. It feels Bobby's like a long a time. User. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been using it about, a, I guess, close to a year now. I mean, I guess it all came out about a year or so ago, but it's, it's really impressive. Yep. So like that, that, that lives within like fabric notebooks um, in terms of like spark runtimes and, you know, like, Hey, I'm coding up notebooks. I want to have like copilot assist me alongside that. It's showing up in data factory, like describe the type of transformations you're looking for, describe the data movements, and it can start to, Again, mock up, build out the initial skeleton and framework of what you're looking to do. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> providing a lot of um, a lot of levering to the work that users would normally do uh, in Fabric, because almost every piece of it now has a copilot assistant that's going to be available. It's in private pre- in previews now, um, and will slowly be rolling out to more general availability. I mean, they could have had Clippy, you know, in the last five, ten years, but it makes me so sad. But they I wish this Clippy would have been. Yeah, yeah, that would have been beautiful. I mean, what a great nod, right? Like to the past, but also (laughs) making it actually useful. Like that was in my mind. That's what Clippy was trying to kind of. Of course, yeah. Twenty shit. And we talked about this recently. Like, I mean, none of these ideas are new. I mean, people have been trying to do computer vision or AI for more than thirty, forty, fifty years. I mean, but Mm -hmm. now we finally have the technology and the capability to do it mm. yeah. at, at scale and co- yeah. relatively cost effectively incredibly quickly yeah i think that's one of the big like the the technology enabled the speed right yeah. like having and you know people a lot of people don't have any idea what federated learning is but like that's what all these ais are that's why they're able to move so quickly is because mm. <laughs> with gpt you've got a million plus users you know in the first whatever week month using it and they're all training it every single time they use it. And the more people that use it, the better it gets trained and the better the mother model becomes. And it just Mm -hmm. keeps going through that cycle. And so it's uh, like, I'm super bullish on, on especially with just how fast everything's moving. It's terrifying because it's like, (laughs) like what's it going to, who knows what it's going to be like, you know, a year from now, Mm -hmm. but uh, well, and then all the rumors with, with Altman. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, that's a you fun know, Thanksgiving the, weekend, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That made, made things, uh, pretty interesting, but you know, the, the, it's not going away and the speed at which it, it can move is just so incredible that I think a lot of people still sleep on that aspect when they're just thinking about it or, you know, like casual tech folks don't really understand just like how powerful all of those users mm. using it at the same time are to its development speed and stuff it and it starts to change the types of skills and problems that you want to solve as in your 
Absolutely. in your domain and your skill in your career. So if you're, you know, if, if you've specialized and developed your career and skill around solving a type of problem that GPT can solve or LLM can solve, it's going to be tough sledding over the next five to 10 years as GPT solves the problem that you used to be able to solve. Um, or if you're a coder and you pride yourself on being fast and efficient and effective coding, like you'll get faster and more effective, but some of those skills are going to be commoditized by that. LLMs. Yeah. And yeah. so you got to think strategically about like, what are the types of problems that need to be solved uh, that GPT isn't solving right now and won't be solving for any time in the near future. And those are a lot of like people problems. Those are processes yeah. those are patterns. Um, yeah. Those are like larger frameworks. It's a level of abstraction above. Cause a lot of the, like the raw typing on keyboard work um, is, is going to be things that LLMs get to um, provide a lot of advantages and leveraging too. that. That's going to, optimize out some of the work that you you were really good at that you yeah. did have then, a unique place in the market for and you talk about earlier on just about you know coming from that more liberal arts background i mean mm -hmm. you came even from a theology background but you're starting to see even now with some of this prompt engineering like they're looking at journalism majors or english majors yeah. and those are the people that are <laughs> getting offered two hundred three hundred thousand dollars to be prompt engineers <laughs> i mean like but again, knowing how to ask the computer yeah. questions is going to be a big deal, you know, and then mm. in upskilling people on that side of it, you know, it's not mm. now is it going to be, do people need to go learn SQL or should they learn how to prompt a, a co-pilot, you know, yeah. or, or <laughs> oh, an I mean, LLM? Mm. Like I'm very much so in that camp, right? Like, uh, I backed up our, our apps database to, uh, to SQL explicitly using gpt without mm. any lines of code written and i was just yeah. amazed at that the fact that it did it so well and quickly and then i was like yeah. oh shit i guess i don't have to learn sql anymore like, <laughs> that's been on my short list mm -hmm. for the last five to ten years now and it's like well if i can get gpt to do it why do i need mm -hmm. to any you know under like i think that's the other thing there right it's yeah. like every math class we've ever taken right like yeah. hey you need to understand the proof and the bounds so that you can <laughs> leverage this and for so sure that's i think that's mm -hmm. a big proponent too but i completely agree with you like a lot of people don't they, they the casual user doesn't understand how valuable the prompt itself is right mm -hmm. and like even internally i've every time i prompt it it's act as and your goal is to Mm -hmm. And like, and just including those two things can completely change the output of what it gives you for the mm -hmm. better a lot of the time and stuff. And mm -hmm. so like, do not, uh, my advice for most people is just do not sleep on, on the prompt. And there's so many tools out there now where it's like, yeah. Hey, here's all these crowdsource prompts that people upvote and you can just copy and paste them you know, and like, yeah. or store them now within GPT directly. And so it's, it's wild. Yeah. And we see how powerful, like that like general generic open GPT is like, Hey, mm -hmm. no specific use case. You can tell it to whatever they think about like having co-pilots that are embedded and designed around a specific use case, like designing a power BI report or helping me write SQL. Um, some of that prompt engineering becomes even less essential because like right. it knows that you're writing SQL queries right now. And it knows it's prompt because it's within the SQL GUI within fabric or it's the power BI and it knows that it's working on top of your data model. And so even like those hyper tuned co-pilots become really powerful that, yeah. I mean, all the stories about, you know, GPT making mistakes or not understanding what you're trying to do. But when you start putting co-pilots that are designed around specific right. tasks and use cases, uh, it, it yeah becomes more powerful as well. So let's let's pivot a little bit and maybe we can talk about how many how some of this weaves in. But let's talk about your journey into the independent consulting and the data shop and maybe first talk about just, you know, 
why you kind of move that way and what your what the mission is and then you know maybe how some of this technology is enabling that as well sure so i <laughs> had an entrepreneurial itch for a while and i've worked at big companies i mean microsoft is huge i worked at large within large consulting organizations or uh, worked alongside like large enterprises doing data platform builds and i, I just didn't work well as a small per, a small cog in a very large wheel with huge systems. And I uh, felt the itch to go do this myself and saw a lot of things that I liked about consulting. Saw a lot of things that I didn't like about consulting um, <laughs> and wanted to think about designing consulting practices a little differently. Um, so data shops is solo, solo shop. It's going to stay that way. It's me. Um, this is not scaling up to a large team of people. Um, but my, my goal, my passion really is to, help teams, data teams specifically, define, identify, and deliver value for their businesses and communities. And so I've got a specific interest in working with nonprofit organizations, um, but but I've worked alongside government organizations, retail, plenty of for-profits as well. And so I, I think about uh, defining value and not by inputs and like how long are we spending on this job and even that's how consultants bill um, and that framework of how like most companies are, are buying services and deciding outcomes based on how much or deciding uh, value based on how much input went into it. How much money did we spend on that? How much time did we spend on that? Um, or even based on outputs, like how much stuff did we make? Um, right. But really like defining value based on outcomes. And that's, this goes back to the beginning of our conversation around like um, business outcomes being the driving force for the data team. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's what I do. I love the technical stuff. Like I'm happy to dive into like the weeds of data warehousing, data engineering stuff. Um, I love the people in the processes side and I like to partner with data teams uh, to think about those holistic pieces of partnering with the business to uh, define business outcomes um, and helping them get those pieces correct, um, helping them think about, uh, think well about business literacy and, and business problems. Um, and then dive into the weeds around like, how do we do that well from a data process procedure, infrastructure side of things. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's been kind of the mission, the vision of the data shop. Um, we're not talking about tracking time and hours and inputs of how much things cost us or how many times we put into it. Uh, we're really focused on like, what are the results that we, we deliver at the end? Um, I want my customers to deliver business results. Um, and so I partner with them and similarly, like I want to deliver business results for my data team directly that I'm working with. And so hopefully there's, there's a lot of alignment, shared incentives, which I think has been lacking in a lot of how IT consulting services are done. A lot of misaligned incentives around uh, <laughs> the, the consulting firm and the, the end customer there. Yeah, because I mean, I think one thing I've seen a lot with you know IT or data consulting, it's like, how can we embed ourselves and stay longer? <laughs> you know what I mean? You come in right. and like it's yeah. about, oh, oh, now that, oh, this but oh they've actually got a problem with this too so how can we make ourselves mm, sticky yeah. or you know and like, again really i mean yeah. like they they brought you in for a reason and like you know identify what that reason is i guess mm. is what you're saying and then deliver on it and yeah you know and again by doing it the right way and you know, that should you know build on itself and snowball mm, yep when when you get paid based on how many hours you spend at a company then you are looking for ways to be sticky and to spend more time yep. there yeah when you're paid based on delivering an outcome or a business value uh you you, you you know when you're done, like you know when you've delivered your outcome. Maybe there's another outcome you work to later, um, but it's less of less of a misaligned incentive around like I need to spend more time here. What other things can I? What other work can I crop up? Yeah, and there's also the thing too where it's like the 
just because they spend a lot of time doesn't mean it's better. I mean, like, I mean, yeah. usually the the value is like, can you can you deliver a good solution quickly? I mean, like, and that's why people should pay a lot more for that, even because I mean that mm-hmm. time to value or that you know even like NPV. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot more value in getting to that solution you wanted quicker, just because mm. this person was really good and it only took them ten hours to do it yeah. instead of forty. Like, that's a good thing. Yeah, you know, it's, more, it's more valuable if it comes quicker, yeah. right? Like yeah. ultimately, like hey, I can have a solution in six months, or I can have it in one month. Right. I'm paying more for the one month. Yeah. 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 Or even with, well, yeah, that's like in uh, in project management, right? You have three knobs you can turn and it's speed, mm-hmm. it's quality and it's uh, cost. Right. And so if, <laughs> if you're focused on keeping your cost down, your speed and quality mm-hmm. probably aren't going to be very good. <laughs> you know, you can't, you can't turn all three knobs. You can only have two max. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that's, uh, that is a lot of problems with, with development, right? Like I've started using a new developer for our app who is a standalone, you know, solo developer, but, mm. and I was using a shop before, which wasn't a big shop, but I had a project manager and they've got a dev team behind them that, you know, mm-hmm. focuses on back end, front end, et cetera. And, you know, the, the old shop that I was using was technically cheaper on like an hourly basis, but then half of those, you know, like, uh, don't even get me started, but there were uh, <laughs> time reports that I got where it's like half mm. the time, that mm. I'm paying you for is going to the project management. I'm like, I'm mm. doing the project management. I don't know why we're doubling mm. this here. Like I'm not coding. I'm, mm. and I'm technical enough to be able to tell you the requirements and everything that I want. I just want it mm. done. I don't need it to go through three different people and then have to be pay for your time to copy and paste it into Jira. Like <laughs> that's just ridiculous. So now doing this mm. with the solo developer, I can just tell mm. him, put it into his ticket. He goes and he does it and he calls me or shows me a loom and says, Hey, is this how you wanted it to work? And it's so much faster and it's actually cheaper, even though he's more expensive yeah. on an hourly rate because it's done faster, right? Yeah. Like, Total cost of ownership. Right? Yeah. Well, and like yeah. the other thing that you point out too, which I also completely agree with is that, you know, it's the incentives. Like people are so people, everything that humans do it boils down to incentives in my opinion right like how are people incentivized whether it's within a company or whether it's you know transactional like what we're talking about with developers and yeah if you're incentivized on an hourly basis guess what you're going to want to try and spend as many hours doing that shit as you possibly can whether it was good quality or not right or Mm -hmm. whether you could have done it faster or not and that's of course completely counter typically to your customer who wants to save time but also wants to speed it up right like Mm -hmm. and so i i really uh, like respect and appreciate how you've kind of structured that because i think that needs to be much more uh that needs to be a lot more common and i also think the flip side of that from the company's you know client's perspective the need like clients need to realize that you know hey this should be like a successful project with a good team should be mm. based like project based not mm. time and materials based <laughs> and because your incentives are aligned i mean all the mm. way back to your original point right like if and how many projects also like could have had so much potential but they ran out of budget they were delayed like there are all these cost factors up front mm-hmm. that prohibited it from ever getting across the finish line and then they've abandoned that yeah when there mm-hmm. could have been a lot of value extracted from it but they just never got it across the line right like we run into problem all the time in our industry with people you know the last five years especially the last year or so like mm-hmm. hey we, we're gonna use ml we need to use ml blah, blah blah every fucking press release and earnings call and all of the energy companies are talking about ml and then it's like 
yeah, we've got all this data, but it's 20, 30 years of data that is across spreadsheets and PDFs and SQL mm-hmm. servers and none of it's structured, <laughs> none of it's, you know, like you can't, you can't just jump to, oh, we're going to automate everything with AI and ML <laughs> if you don't have good data structures and stuff yeah. put in place. And so it's like, you're going to have to spend the money to go do that, whether you do it internally or externally, you have to have these foundational pieces to achieve those long-term big picture things that you want to do. And mm-hmm. it's going to cost time and money to like, it, it requires resources to get there, whether <laughs> you want to, uh, whether you want it to be that way or not. Yeah. Right? Like it's, it's just a, a yeah. thing. Well, and I mean, the, going back to the original thing we started with, like business outcomes, the reason companies come in and just start billing as a consultant and just start working on stuff, sometimes without end, um, is because they don't actually know what they're trying to get to. Yeah. They're just doing lots of work and we're headed towards some ethereal goal of having a data warehouse or having some sort of analytical solution. We don't actually know what the end goal is, or we don't have markers of how to get, how do we know right. we make progress towards it um, from a business outcome standpoint. So that's why scope creep is a problem and everybody's yeah. Yeah. terrified of scope creep um, because we're like, well, we're, we might we might end up doing extra work on this side over here and that'll be more hours over here. We didn't, the business was probably lazy up front when they hired the consultant in terms of like, they didn't know what their business outcome was. They maybe had a bunch of technical objectives. The consulting company didn't figure out all that either. And so they come in the door and be like, well, we don't know how long it's going to take. So we're going to bill hours and we're going to roll with that. Um, Like that, it all really comes full circle to like the point of like, we're goal is to deliver business outcomes and value. Um, do we actually even know what that means? And yeah, how do we figure that out first? First and mo- yeah. most importantly, like what are we actually trying to yeah. do here? I, I know like you've run into that all the time. Like everyone does that. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, I want, I want this. It's like, okay, but what does that really mean? Like what impact mm-hmm. is that just going to make your life a little bit easier? Or is that have yeah. a direct business impact that we can then scale out across the entire organization instead of just, you know, it makes your, it saves you 10 minutes a day from, yeah you know, whatever. Yeah. It requires you actually care. Like, so yeah. for a lot of people in a lot of people in their work, like, Hey, like I haven't thought about this enough to like define an outcome. Right. Um, it's the people who are passionate and actually care about what's happening. They're the ones who want to drill into this outcome stuff and figure out like, what's the end result we're getting to people who are checking in, checking out, punching time cards. Um, that's, that's where a lot of this comes out of is like, yeah. you have to put in lot some work to figure out what are the outcomes we're driving to instead of just like, I'm doing my day job. Yeah. Well, and it ends up being a much better and longer term relationship too, right? Like this new developer I'm using, I wrote him a couple of reviews yesterday because of how good, mm-hmm. like we were, we're implementing auth zero for our user management on our low code platform. <laughs> anyway. You're right. You can make it. <laughs> Anyway, like there's all these people have implemented, <coughs> good Lord, people have implemented all zero and stuff on this platform before, but never with existing users. And so like I, I talked to so many developers, so many dev shops, and I could not find a person that could confidently be like, yeah, this is exactly how we're going to do it. And the guy that I found, sure enough, he actually wrote one of the all zero plugins for the platform out of the gate, which is how I found him. <laughs> but then he, as we were developing updated his plugin based off our workflow specifically so that it would work for what we were doing. And that's a true partnership, mutually beneficial relationship instead of a, Hey, you know, I just need it to check these boxes and hopefully it works. 
kind of mm-hmm. thing, right? Like sure. people come back and they keep using you and they want to use you and they'll tell your friends about you and write <laughs> shit on the internet about you. And like, yeah. it's a, it's a much better way of doing things. And trust in general, yeah. you know, you just, when, when both, again, I guess it's come, comes back to the aligned incentives and just yep. they, you trust the other person that you know they're giving you what you need and that you're delivering what they, what they need um you know, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing but i mean and i don't want to get because like billing and pricing can be pretty a very it could be at its own topic um <laughs> but like but i say with this i mean like how do you do you have kind of a framework that you use like for you know, working with clients to kind of identify what that value is. And then again, making sure that there's value in the project for you too. Cause I mean, in the, at the end of the day, you are still a, a business and you know, you've, you've got to make money and provide for, you know, yourself, family, you know, whatever yeah. else. Like, so, I mean, how do you kind of protect yourself, you know, with like identifying that value and making sure that, you know, the value that they're going to receive is also, you know, generates value for you as a, as a business owner. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, I, there's not a clear uh, formula that you follow. Yeah. So it depends on the nature of. I'm not going to like start work on a problem or on a, on this if I don't know that I can deliver the solution. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at the end, and that that's a, a big part of it right there. Like if I don't know what the end result's going to look like, and I'm not confident I can get you there, we're 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 pulling out. I'm very happy to say no to work in that sense. Um, if I'm not the right person, I'm going to send you somebody else who who is. When I'm confident about the solution that we can deliver, um, and like I know that, like, hey, I, I know that outcome. I know the measurable steps we can get there, and I'm I'm confident that I can help you get those directions. Um, then it's a matter of figuring out what does that do for your business, and what is that like? What kind of value are we are we developing there? Sure. Um, and then and then what makes sense from a um, from a cost perspective for you to invest to get that result and so there's a uh, a lot of art and science in that yeah. um and it's it, it, it helps everybody get on the same page a little bit cleaner because i'm i'm here until that result is done like that's that's, that's the way yeah. I, I talk with customers i'm here until the result's done so uh i'm in line to making sure that we define that really well and that i know that i can get you there um because i'm not getting paid more if it takes longer yeah um i'm getting paid more the same amount to deliver the result so it's a it's it's a it's a hopefully partnerships are much more art than science yeah. and that's kind of what ends up being like at the beginning when you talk about like cost of a project uh and then throughout and even like the termination like when things wrap up yeah and no, i think i think that part where you talk about being able able or and or willing to say no yeah. to, to work is is a huge thing because i mean i think there's some people that and i think it's tough when social people get started you know they're like i need any money <laughs> yeah, right like they, they want to get going to eat. um <laughs> but yeah, but identifying, say, what your niche is and then also what your skills are, what you know you can deliver, I, mean, I think is, is a huge deal. And then being willing to say, like, look, I don't know if I'm the person for this it yeah. is huge. But I think that also builds trust, too. And I, those people yeah, will absolutely. come back when, you know, they all right, we understand better what you do. And like, maybe you're not the right person for this, but, you know, you've built a level of trust because you shot us straight. You didn't just try to milk us, you know, for, yeah. for two months out of out of some money. No, I mean, that, <laughs> that that's huge in our industry, right? Like if you burn somebody, our industry is international, but it is still very mm. small and people mm-hmm. talk all the time. And sure. if you screw somebody over, it's going to make its way around. Or if you are unsuccessful and promise one yeah. thing and you couldn't deliver on it, it's going to make its mm-hmm. way around. And so yeah. like people absolutely respect you being able to tell them, no, I can't do that. You should go talk to this person or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, just, I mean, you're right. It builds so much trust. But like one thing you also mentioned though, too, that a lot of people don't focus on is it's like, Hey, I want to do this. How much is it going to cost? But they don't <laughs> ever 
talk at least directly with the developers or development team at all about what what the value of it is right like quantifiably what is the value and that's where a lot of the friction in software development within businesses comes is business user has this problem and they would present it to whoever for funds or budget for that solving that problem but then they have to now sell their boss on why Mm. it's worth that input and they don't know what the Mm -hmm. value like what the tangible value of that is on the back end sometimes you can't but you should at least try and estimate, you know, mm-hmm. to with reasonable inputs and and you know constraints and constants mm-hmm. to figure out like, hey, it's going to cost fifty thousand, and it's going to save our team of a hundred people thirty minutes a day, which equates <laughs> to you know fifty thousand dollars a week or whatever the hell it you know may be, and so therefore yeah. it's a very good obvious benefit, right? Yeah. People just come in and they say, I've got this problem, can you solve it? And they don't get that layer deep of okay what truly is the problem and what is the value that this problem solving this problem will actually provide yeah. to figure out whether we actually need to appropriate figure solve this problem or not really like, yeah because yeah. the higher up the uh, the leadership chain you go the more and more they're focused on business objectives they yeah. see like end goals of like what we need like if you talk to the ceo they're not concerned about activities happening within the company. They're concerned about like key objectives yeah. mm-hmm. uh, that is set by the board or that's related to like the share price. Like there's right. on those objectives. And so if you try to sell tasks as you go up the chain, like, well, we're doing this work down here. Um, it communicates less and less as yeah. you step up the chain of leadership because they're less and less concerned about busy work or activities that are happening. They're much more concerned about what are the results that it's doing to like to yeah. that. Men How is it making me more revenue or reducing my cost? Yeah. Or IP standing out different from my competitors. Yeah. That's the, (laughs) well, I think it's, and I think we were talking about something earlier and, um, and I think, I think it always comes back as a partnership, but you know, the business needs to identify the KPIs, but sometimes like they need coaching, you know, on -hmm. how, what those are, or, you know, there needs to be a a working session with the data people and so on. I mean, cause, and there was a kind of a framework that I liked that I saw, um, I think it was about a, within the last year or so. I think a guy Abby came out there, but it's like the idea of like metric trees. I don't know if you've seen that at all, but mm, like I haven't. No. Um, but it's kind of like, all right, let's start from the top from a company, and like let's say that our north star is, you know, let's make it really simple: profit. Yeah, you know, so profit. All right, what's the formula that profit? <laughs> it's you know revenue minus expenses. Mm-hmm. All right, so now mm-hmm. that's a tree here, and now all right, let's now what say for us what right, generates what revenue? Uh, well, it's barrels of oil times oil price you mm-hmm. know and then there's different things that, you know yeah. that feed into those but you can break mm-hmm. those down and then at different layers like now the data team can actually deliver on like how do we track those things that are right. actually working their way back up but we have to identify what that north star is and like that's what you're saying like i don't know maybe your ceo is more cash flow you know right, right. focus or there's different you know metrics yeah. that matter no but, for sure you know but then really breaking it down and making sure that whenever we're working on something it's part of one of these <laughs> parts of the tree that actually adds value back up to the top because i mean i think mm-hmm. you know we see it a lot even like on our data team you get people in the, and they're in the weeds and, the, and you want to yeah. help them do their job but is it really value adding to the business like you know that they yeah. were able to do this thing 10 right. minutes faster is it, again is like it personally yeah and, and again like and then there's building you know where you can help it's good but right. like you know making sure that what you're doing is adding value whether it's an, as an internal data team or again even as an external consultant making sure that it's it's driving the value again and especially for the people that matter the most and i think maybe another thing we can talk about is you know making regular talks i think you've talked about it a good but i think ethan aaron talks about it you know 
quite a bit too is like go talk to the executives you know mm-hmm. or vps like and like understand what's keeping them up at night or what what, what they see as objectives because like then you'll know you know when you're working on certain things that that's actually adding value towards what they see as being valuable no i mean that's just a pro sales tip out of the gate right like if you <laughs> want to sell really well ask your potential customer what their problems are and what their incentives are right like how are they compensated figuring out if they have bonuses and how like if you can make your customer an all-star you can get them a promotion you can get them their bonuses mm-hmm. that year whatever you're going to keep calling you like it it makes a lot more sense that way when you just boil it down to hey how do i make you look like a stud how do i get you your your bonus or get you promoted or whatever like that because that's ultimately again going back to incentives that's really (laughs) people i I win when you win yeah Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. no um that that tree idea makes a ton of sense because the other Mm -hmm. thing too right is it's like it's not even you know okay yeah it might add value but how much of that value like how much value is it yeah. because that's one of the hardest parts about development is priority there's so much there's always a backlog and there's always a laundry list of shit that needs to get done and it needs to be done tomorrow but which one of those things has the highest priority which one is the most impactful which one has the easiest route and fastest route to success versus the other ones that might be more complicated you might have to do some more architecture stuff on back end or whatever mm-hmm. and so like all of those things are very important yeah. Uh-huh. And also what parts of that can you control? I mean, like, yes. say that part I, I got into revenue and say for us, it's, you know, barrels times oil price. Mm-hmm. I can't really control oil price. Yeah. You yeah. Can. Get mm-hmm. yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, in a way uh, until <laughs> prices double while you're headed. No, I mean, so I, I mean, no, to, to your credit, I mean, I, I, I did, I kind of skipped past that. I mean, you know, I mean, the finance team or whatever could come up you know, with a hedging strategy that, you know, ensures, you know, you can insure a floor, but then you yeah. ca- you also cap your profits on the top. Of course, yeah, yeah. That's the double-edged sword of the, the hedging side of it. But. Um. I mean, John, you're right about like, there's, when we talk about this, it sounds really simple. Like, oh, like just do things that are valuable. And like, like, like this is, this is hard work because there's lots of competing ideas, lots of competing priorities, lots of objectives that you could go after. Um, it requires a, a it, it really boils down to leadership. Um, does leadership have a clear vision of where they're headed and can yeah. they articulate that and communicate that well? Otherwise, like among the troops, like the teams are going to be chasing whatever priority they think is shiny for that week uh, and you will end up all across the board. So like it's, it sounds simple, achieve business outcomes. Um, it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of good leadership to, to do that well. Yeah, well, and to your point too, like even if the company leadership understands it, if they can't effectively communicate that down or like mm-hmm. people, you know, we haven't really talked about this a lot, but, um, you know, when Bobby and I were working together full time, we did a ton of strategy stuff. We did, I mean, OKRs and we, we built out, we completely revamped our mission and our vision for the, like the company and all those things. And it's like people kind of, you know, see the very generic mission statements and vision statements mm-hmm. from the companies mm-hmm. on the websites and stuff. But like, if you have a good one, that is what you make your decisions off of, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. our ability, our mission at digital wildcatters is to change the way the world thinks about energy. So anytime I'm like, Hey, we're going to, we need, do we need to spend money on this? Do we need to put our resources towards this? Do we need to focus on something that's, I I can lean back into that to say, Hey, does this check that box? If it doesn't, then I probably don't need to do it because that's not the mission or the objective of what the company is trying to do. Yeah. Right. And like when Bobby and I were working together, I was in product development, new product development. And it's one of those things where it's like, Hey, I've got all these really good ideas. I'm getting all this feedback from our clients on things that they would like to see, but how the hell do I prioritize them? Like which one brings the most value Do these align with, you know, some of the things that, because that's the problem is like, especially when there's 
you're in an industry where there's a lot of opportunity like oil and gas, not just from a money perspective, but the fact that they're five to 10 years behind tech wise, just like every other major (laughs) school industry is, um, that you don't, you can chase a million rabbits, but you need to make sure that those rabbits fit with the organ the organization itself and the mission of what the organization is trying to accomplish and what leadership mm-hmm. is trying to accomplish and stuff like that. Because if it doesn't, it's not going to really matter and you're probably going to get a lot of flack for it on the back end. Yeah. And I think, I mean, and, and it, it kind of plays in to your theme of actually saying no, even like to projects, but there, yeah. I think, and I'm going to, maybe I'll nail it. Maybe I'll paraphrase it, but I think it was Steve jobs, but I think it's like focus isn't saying yes to one thing and saying no to like a thousand, a thousand things yeah. like <laughs> yeah. um so yeah i mean like but 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 then having the processes in place or even just the permission like in a business to say no i'm not going to do that yeah. like and have that trust to be able to have that yeah you know, candid conversation with someone and say right. no that's not actually important to the mission this is what we need to do right. or not right now yeah like the yeah. urgency of it isn't yes it's a good idea let's put it let's document it let's capture it let's put it somewhere so that we will get to this at some point but right now it's not a priority and yeah. that happens all the time yeah right? like mm-hmm. it's a good idea but it's not right the right time for yeah. it yeah <laughs> sure Damn. if this is i mean the, the type of people listening to this are probably the people who uh think about this a lot i mean they're listening to a industry podcast play on their own time um, so if, if like data teams being valuable and like these type of conversations interesting, I have like a, a free 12 day bootcamp email course on my website. If anybody's interested, they can datashop.co slash value. Um, and they can sign up. It's like 12 emails that basically walks through this sort of paradigm of like, how are we defining value? What do we not want to measure? What do right. we do want to measure? Um, what do, how do we know when we're getting it wrong? those type of pieces. So if that's useful or this conversation is interesting about creating an invaluable data team or teams that deliver value, um, I'll throw that out there as a resource for, yeah, for the, yeah the definitely. And we can yeah, we'll put link it, it when we send stuff out. Put it in the show stuff. notes and, sure. and on the YouTube video and stuff. Man, we've already <laughs> blown through that hour. That was yeah. super, super quick. Uh, um, so sorry, at the end of the, the episodes, we kind of do like a little speed round. We try and mix multiple choice. I, I wrote a list down and I I have no idea where it is. It's somewhere <laughs> on Notion, ClickUp, Jira, Notes, <laughs> Slack, or my my messages. It's somewhere in there, but uh, Notepad plus plus. Yeah, we'll uh, <laughs> everything's on Notepad plus. Yes, yeah. yeah. We'll uh, we'll kind of jump into that real quick, and then um, we'll we'll wrap up here. But um, I think I probably know your answer to this, but. AWS, Google, or uh, <laughs> Azure, Azure. You know, it's not because I've tried them all and I have a strong preference. It's because, like, I just spent a lot of time in Azure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, each industry kind of is like drifted towards one, or like certain types of companies end up in one. They all got parallel tools. I don't know that I really would have a preference if I had rigorously tried them all. But Azure's my world, and I'm I'm sticking there. Nice. Um, so I guess kind of piggybacking off of that, because I wanted to ask earlier, but we'll start the question just be, what's your favorite open source library? Um, but then also mm-hmm. kind of do you dabble in open source or have you, like, do you, have you stayed mainly on the Microsoft stack? You know, uh, in the Microsoft stack, I would say related to that, though, would be Apache Spark is probably where I okay. spent most of the time on an open source project where I've used the open source project, usually using some managed version of it. Maybe that's in Synapse and Databricks, but yeah. um, Spark has become like the de facto big data engineering runtime. Yeah. Um, and I've had a lot of fun like 
uh, with that tool in different contexts, very flexible, remarkably scalable. Um, so well, uh, Apache Spark would probably be the main open source right. tool. That's open source. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. In addition to Notepad++ probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, who are some, some, uh, either social or technical follows that you, uh, that you would recommend in either the technical mm. or the kind of, what would you call that software Soft development ops? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. There's probably t- uh, LinkedIn's my world. I don't really spend much time anywhere else. Um, so data people on LinkedIn that I enjoy, you guys mentioned Ethan Aaron at portable, um, really enjoy his framework yeah. and how he thinks. Um, he's a good follow. Um, there's another gentleman named Chad Sanderson at uh, another startup, data startup called um, Gable. Chad is a very, very capable thinker, really uh, thoughtful guy around uh, data data world. So I'd throw out those two names probably as two people I enjoy interacting with online. Um, let's do favorite. You got a couple good uh, books or podcasts that you would recommend to folks in this space. Ooh, books. Um, there is a book that is um, by Douglas Hubbard called "How to Measure Anything." Um, kind of a kind of a classic. It's only that old, probably maybe ten or fifteen years ago. Um, that's an excellent book when you think about. Yes, we can measure revenue and like really metric things, but there might be a lot of other things we need to measure on yeah. our team yeah. or in our company that are intangible. Um, and so he provides kind of like frameworks and thinking about how do you, how do you measure things that aren't numerical? Um, so yeah. I, I throw that book out there as a, as a, as a good option. Yeah. There's a, another, another one I'll add would be a book called crucial conversations. Um, and it's kind of a, I don't know, counseling interpersonal like relationship book. Um, but like there's a lot of examples in it that apply really importantly to the business world. Uh, what do you do when talking when the stakes are high and there's maybe competing interests or um, that come into play when you think about priorities and teams and careers? Um, it, it's a really tactical book about having hard conversations that show up like all the time in our daily world uh, or in our daily lives and careers as well as like family and interpersonal. So I found that book really uh, holistically valuable to me. No, that sounds like I'm going to add that yeah. to my list. That sounds really good very valuable across i like i like things like the one you were talking about before where you're measuring i was going to throw out measure what matters bobby turned me on to that that's a, yeah, another really good one. okrs um and then but yeah like you know there's always a situation where there's going to be competing interests whether it's personal or business mm-hmm. or whatever right like uh, that's yeah. that's some good stuff there yeah one more yeah i got one and it's not even related to data or anything but what's your favorite place to go on vacation Oh, the last two years I've gotten really into mountain biking. And okay. so I would say I love the mountains. I've loved the mountains forever. Um, and I haven't got to go to the mountains since I've started mountain biking. So now I'm like really <laughs> itching to like head out to Colorado or, um, yeah, so somewhere where I can like hit some real or, or Whistler, um, something where I can hit like some real mountain biking trails the first time. So I, I love, I love the mountains in the summer. Um, skiing in the winter would be cool too but right now like yeah. summer mountains would probably be it so rockies generally nice. probably would be the number one place i would look at uh, yeah 100 one of our prior guests david thule is also a big mountain biker and mm-hmm. uh i went to my undergrad is at the university of arkansas and at some 
point in my life. I hope to ultimately retire in Northwest Arkansas, but he, and that's like mountain biking Haven, right? Northwest yeah. Arkansas? So that's why I was bringing it up is because mm-hmm. I would, he highly recommended, uh, I didn't mountain bike, but we would hike and camp and stuff in college all around there. That's why that part of the country is just so awesome, but it's also super slept on. Like a lot of people really don't know about it. Um, yeah. so I would highly recommend checking out Fayetteville in Northwest Arkansas. Um, mm-hmm. last question what's what's one piece of advice you would give to somebody um kind of coming into the the technology space at this time whether it's from school or transitioning from a previous you know career path or anything like that uh there's a lot of you probably have a lot of perceptions if you're transitioning into the technical world you probably have a lot of perceptions about what certain jobs are like like i want to be a software dev or i want to be a data engineer or data analytics person i have a lot of ideas about what that would look like uh one of the most valuable things you can do is just have informational interviews with people and like, what is that job actually like? Um, that was something that I had a, a window of time for probably a year or so when I was having calls as often as I could with people across the tech world to figure out like what these jobs look like on the ground. Um, there's a lot of perceptions that you get from online about like the salary or the type of work or what it's like to be these different things. Um, but I would talk to people who are in the, in the industry in that role specifically. Um, what is that? look like and what does it look like on a daily basis and then and then try to map that well to yourself like is that is that what i want is yeah. that what i'm interested in and and chase it around till you find that thing it might be it security might be data analytics might be pm or technical pm work um there's a lot of things in technology a lot of different roles some are softer skills some are harder skills all sorts of mixture i would just explore and have like a lot of conversations about it that's great advice because i i'm right there with you and you i'm glad you mentioned it right like people think of software as like a group, right? Or like <laughs> IT is like, oh, well, you can just be in IT. And it's like, no, there are so yeah. many different specialties within all of this yeah. that yeah. like the average person doesn't understand. And there's so many layers of it and there's very different skills, right? Like if you're really good at math, you should probably look at mm-hmm. machine learning data science because that's where that is useful, right? Yeah, but if sure. you don't like coding and math and complicated problems, probably not the best route for you. Mm-hmm. Um, where can people find you uh, online? We'll put it in the in the show notes in the description below. So let people yeah. know where they can uh, reach out. Uh, I'm most active on LinkedIn on social media. So um, just my name, Sawyer Nyquist, probably the only one out there. Um, and then the datashop.co slash value. If it's an email boot camp, those emails come out from me. If they find things interesting in those emails, hit reply. And I can, I'd love to dialogue and continue conversations around that. Um, those are the two places I would say for me. Perfect. Um, everybody, if you like the show, you like our podcast, like what we're doing, please go, uh, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, uh, give us some, some feedback, whether you're listening or watching, um, on whatever platform you're using. We appreciate everybody. Sawyer, thanks so much, man. We've, yeah, thank we've you had a great time. It's a pleasure, gentlemen. Thank you much. All right. Have a good one. While some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Goodbye.